Hi, this is Edwin Crozier with the Franklin Church of Christ again, and I want to welcome you as we open our Bibles and study God's Word. Today, I've got a very exciting lesson for you. Special guest, Ken Craig, a bishop in the church in Birmingham, came and presented this lesson to us. It's the first in a three-part series on God's amazing plan to redeem you. Let me encourage you, get out your Bible and be prepared to study God's Word and learn how God planned to save us. Well, good morning to everyone. It's uh, a great pleasure to be here with you today on this dark and uh, dismal day. But it's uh, it's good to be back here at the Franklin Church. I'm delighted to be here. I hope that you're here today to just study some great and important things about the wonderful things that God has done for us. I'm glad to uh, see everyone. I'm sorry if I don't remember everybody's name. I'm not real good with that, but I am glad to see my good friend Steve and Paula Helsley. They drove all the way down here from Bowling Green. They've heard this about a dozen times now, and uh, but sometimes you just have to do that for slow learners, and and uh, maybe they'll get it this time. And Edwin was incorrect. We're not going to take a 3,000-foot view. We're going to take about a 20,000-foot view. Uh, we're going to look at this, uh, this great plan of redemption is the theme of the Bible. This started out as a three-month class, and I've tried to work it down to three lessons. Uh, so forgive me if I just assert some things. If you have any questions about anything or want to discuss anything further or look at things in more detail, I'll be more than happy, I know Edwin would too, to study those with you in more detail. I don't think we'll present anything today that is not familiar to you. But sometimes we get so caught up in things, we just lose the big picture. This is a big picture uh, look today. Uh, and if you look at the Bible that was written by so many different men from different cultures and backgrounds over thousands of years, and then you realize that all those men are working to this one central thing, you begin to see that this is an incredible, incredible plan. And it's not only that, it's an incredible evidence of the Bible. Although we're not going to talk about evidences, I hope that you'll begin to see that. These images come from the, the famous movie, The Passion of the Christ, because some places I've talked about this as The Passion of the Christ explained, and we'll see some of that. This morning, we're going to start on a hilltop in Galilee, where Christ is about to leave the earth, and he says something very important. You know, imagine you were going to leave your family and never see them again, and you had just a few minutes to make a few statements to them. What would you say to them? Would you talk about world peace? You'd talk about something that was very, very important to you, something that weighed very heavily on your heart. And that's what we see that Christ did. He, we see that he gave his disciples a very important and urgent command, known as the Great Commission. He told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now, you just think about that for a minute. How important. Christ just finished his death, you know, his, his perfect life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. He's returning to heaven, and he says, go in all the world and tell the story. Now, what you need to understand from this is that the gospel, not only is it something that's important to Christ, but it's something to be preached. You understand? It's a message. Christ says, go and tell 
this message? And why was it so important to him? Well, we find the answer to that in Romans 1, 16. We're told that the gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? The power of God unto salvation. Now think about that. The gospel is what stands between man and salvation. It's a message to be preached. It's not lightning bolts. It's not something like that. It's a message to be preached at which when a person hears it, they might be saved. And we see further why it's important in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, where we're told that when Christ returns with his angels to, to deal out retribution, he's going to deal out retribution to two groups of people, those that do not know God and to those who do not obey what? The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a little scary. You know, again, it's this message of the gospel, and it's something that people have to obey, or else they're going to be lost eternally. But we learn even in a scarier sense, and even more importantly, in Galatians, the first chapter, Paul writes, and this is very important, he didn't write to the Galatian elders or the Galatian preachers. He writes this to the Galatian church, and he says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for what? A different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. We learn right off the bat that there's only one gospel. There's only one message that God has authorized to tell people what to do to be saved. Paul goes further. He even states this twice. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be, what? Eternally condemned. If we don't get this one gospel right, and there are different gospels out there, it won't matter what we do in work, or worship, or practice, in religion. This is, I realize... This is definitely not politically correct. It's definitely not ecumenical, and it's also what I would call religiously incorrect. You know, Paul doesn't say here, well, it just doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you just believe in Christ, we're all going to heaven. That's not what he says. Even though that's what the main bulk of religion, religious practice and teaching is today. He says... You've got to get this gospel right. Even if an apostle teaches a different gospel, or an angel were to teach a different gospel, they'll be condemned. This is serious stuff. This is not what the mainstream teaches today, but it is so critically important. Now, what we see is that if you look at the Bible, in, a, in one sense, the gospel is the entire Bible. There's no question about it. And, and it's covered in the Bible by this thing I'm calling the plan of redemption. But the apostles used it often, and most often, in the sense of what this message was that people were to preach in order to be saved. It was the power of God unto salvation. It was that message that needed to be preached. And so our mission this morning is to go and look at and try to understand what that gospel is. Now, when we talk about the plan of redemption, we're talking about... A forest for the trees approach. We spend a lot of time in the trees. We, you know, at least I have over my life, studying different doctrinal things and different uh, important things. But sometimes we lose sight of the fact of the forest. 
that that's the plan of redemption, that all of these things fit within the context of this great story, this great plan of God to redeem mankind. Where do we start? Where do we start to find this one gospel? Well, Galatians 3.24 gives us a pointer. It tells us that the old law was given to be our teacher to teach us something that would bring us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. We see this idea presented in the New Testament several places, that all this stuff in the Old Testament was written to teach us. You know, to, to, it was a learning period. It was something that would, that there's stuff that we needed to learn from that Old Testament period that would bring us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. That's important, isn't it? That means that there's things that we need to understand. I mean, there are people that never even look at the Old Testament today. Don't know anything about it. But it's a lot more than stories about David and Goliath and things like that. It's, it's about the things that we need to learn that would be bring, bring us to Christ. And we can even see that Timothy was told that, that uh, it was those sacred writings which brought him to Christ. Now, where do we start? Well, we find that God had this plan, this amazing plan to redeem man before the foundation of the world. But how did that come about? I mean, man has a free will. He has the ability to choose between right and wrong. Well, doesn't it just make sense that if God made man with a free will, that man had the ability to choose between right and wrong, that God would have a plan before he created man's free will that would cover either eventuality. So if man never sinned, that was plan A, and if man sinned, this was plan B, and that's what we see, that before he created man, this plan was in place if man chose not to follow. And another thing we need to probably mention is, well, which God are we talking about? You know, we've got this God of the New Testament that's just a God of love and grace and beauty and truth and flowers and goodness and happiness and peace and joy and all these things. And this is the God that we just love and admire so much. But what about the God of the Old Testament? This is this Darth Vader, you know, just mighty you know, God that just, you know, kills and God of wrath and justice and this type of thing. How do we explain it? Is it do we have two different gods? You're supposed to go, no. No, it's one God. It's the same same God. But how do we explain that this? Because God certainly does behave differently toward His creation in the Old Testament than He does in the New Testament. Well, I can explain it this way. If we understand what Galatians 3.24 is telling us, it says that that period of the Old Testament was what? A teaching or a training period to teach us the things that we know to be brought to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. When my children were very little, you know what? I treated them considerably different than I do now that they're grown up. When they were little, I even spanked them occasionally. And you know what? I look more like this to them. Oh, Dad, he's just, you know, boy, if we do this, we'll get a spanking, you know, and all that. Well, now that they're grown up, I look more like this to them because now I give them money. <laughs> now they think I'm a wonderful dad, you know, and all that. Well, but that's, that's, all, that's all we're seeing in the Bible is that during that Old Testament period, God's training us. He's teaching us. He's trying to 
tell us the things that we need to know. And, and what the, the overriding principle, if I can just boil it down, is this. God is holy. And boy, could we spend a lot of time on this one singular concept. Because it's the holiness of God from, that derives and, and drives everything within our relationship between God and man. And God, the fact that God is holy, we just see a couple things. One is that he inhabits the eternity with a dominion defined by his nature. He can't do wrong. He can't act wickedly. He cannot pervert justice. Now let me just ask, just throw this out. Let's suppose for a second that I was omniscient. I was all-knowing. And I was all-powerful. I could do anything I wanted. And I was all-present. I was everywhere present. I'm omnipresent. Would you love me? Would you worship me? Why not? Because I might be just the wickedest thing ever known. I might be a Darth Vader. I might just be a capricious, terrible being with those powers. It's the holiness of God that causes us to love and worship Him because it's all good. There's no evil within God. He's all good. And it's because He's all good that we can look at the powers. It's because of His holiness that we can look at all these attributes of God and we can love and worship Him. His holiness is a a critical component of that. We also see that there's just no hint of moral evil in His nature. Psalm 33 tells us that God's holiness, and I, I would say His holiness is demonstrated to us in these two, following two characteristics, that He is a just God, He's a God of justice, and He is a God of love. And that these are the two characteristics that demonstrate and define His character to His creation. God's holiness is why He asks us to be holy. This this concept in Leviticus 20 is repeated in the New Testament in several places. You are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Now, you think about that. You know, I mean, raising my children, you know, when I'm saying to them, listen, no, you can't go see that movie, because it's got bad stuff in it. You know, you shouldn't listen to that music, because it's got bad... What am I doing? I'm trying to teach them to be holy. I realize they may not grasp all of that, but this is the point. God wants us to be holy because He's holy. He wants His beings, His creation, to be holy like He is. And the reason is this. If we're holy, if we're set apart, if we have no sin in us, then God can have a relationship with man. He wants to have a relationship with His being. And this is what's called spiritual Union. Spirit, you all, fellowship. If we're holy, if we have no sin in our lives, we can stand before God and we can have a spiritual relationship with Him. And that's why He wants us to be holy. And that's why sin is so bad. But when sin enters the picture, here's what happens. Man sins, this holy God, what happens to him? He has to retreat. We see that uh, in Habakkuk that he can't even look upon evil. When God confronts sin, he has to just turn away from it. 
It's an automatic reaction. I remember we used to do a, an experiment in science class back in high school or junior high where you'd put metal filings in a pan of water and you'd stick a magnet in that water and the filings would just go shooting away, repulsed by that magnet. This is the way sin is to God. Sin repulses God. It drives him away. He can't even look upon evil. And here's the real problem. Sin separates us from God. How many sins does it take? Fifty? Ten? One. Does it matter whether it's a big sin or a little sin? doesn't matter. Because God is holy. And sin separates us and repulses, and he has to turn his face from it. And that's a critical, critical problem. So we see that when God is in union with man, that sin separates. And this is so bad that it's given a term called spiritual, what? Death. Notice he doesn't say spiritual slap on the wrist, or if you're a fan of the super nanny, he doesn't send you to the naughty step for five minutes. This is death. Why would God use this term death? Just let that roll around in your mind for a minute. Death. Isn't this just the worst thing that we all fear and that we're all afraid of and that we all want to avoid more than anything else? Death. Spiritual death to be separated from God. What's he telling us? Sin is bad. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Sin is bad. And here's the problem that we all encounter. For all have sinned. Every one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But when we talk about sin and, and how bad it is, we, we want to talk about just for a minute here the consequences of sin. Now think for a minute. We've already talked about one of the consequences of sin, and that's spiritual death. When we sin, there are just some things that automatically take place. Automatic. We're separated from God. Nothing we can do about it. That, that's just it. We're separated from God automatically when we sin. But we also see that there are other consequences. When Adam and Eve first sinned, what happened? Man was destined to live a mortal life. That's a consequence of sin. We're not going to live forever in these physical bodies. We're going to die at some point in our lives. And that's why we need to be ready for that and not be surprised. Couldn't come in a shock, but if Christ doesn't return, we're going to all die in these physical bodies. Other consequences that we see when Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, that's why women have childbirth, pain in childbirth, submission to men. And toil and labor. Man has to toil and labor at his work. We even see the first prophecy of Christ. Think about that. When man first sinned. This plan was there at the start. Now let me ask you, when we've suffered these consequences of sin, has anything occurred that would take care of sin? That would restore man or, or, or do anything? No, not at all. These are just automatic consequences. So it shouldn't surprise us that there's a price for sin. And we see that described that this price of sin, it shouldn't, it shouldn't surprise us that this price is just as bad 
as a consequence, that life is required. Leviticus, I mean, Hebrews 9.22 puts it this way, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. This is the price God has said, if we sin, there's a price on our head from that point on. It's the price of life or death. You know, who deserves to die for the sin that I've committed against the Holy God? Not you. I do. I'm the one that has sinned. I'm the one that has this price on my head. I deserve to die for breaking the laws of the God of the universe. And we see this price described right even in the, in the garden. When man is first put there and he's told, you know, you can eat from any tree in this whole garden. But here's the thing. This one tree over here, don't eat from that. There it is. No, there's only one way they can sin, and that's if they eat from that tree, right? And what does God tell them? In the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, what do they understand? Eve told the serpent later, he said, no, look, I can't even touch this tree, or God will what? Kill me. I'll die. That's what they understood. If they sinned, that they would be killed for that. And that's the price that we see. In the Bible, look at Second Peter, which is referring back to that. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but what? Cast them into hell, committed them to pits of darkness. What about this other thing here? You remember this little flood of Noah? What, was, what did God do there? Well, He just killed every person in the world, except for Noah and his family. Killed them. Why? Because of their wickedness. Because of their sins. What's God telling us in this teaching training period? I mean, he was ready to wipe out the whole world and just end it all right there. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? Do you remember that? He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction. Why? Why did he kill all those people in the cities of the plains? Because of their sin. Because of their wickedness. What's God telling us? What's He trying to teach us here? Thank you, Edwin. Edwin's been through the class. He's not a slow learner. Sin is bad. Sin is bad. Not only that, I'll tell you, I, put it, you know, I said, put it in deep theological terms for you. Sin is really bad. That's what He's trying to tell us. Because it separates us from Him. And it, it requires a price. To be paid. Ezekiel 18.20, the person who sins will what? Will die. Repent and live. The price is right. The old expression, to make the punishment fit the crime, we deserve to die for breaking the laws of the God of the universe. It's, it's, it's just a miraculous that God doesn't just strike us down dead like he often did in, in the Bible, when we, when we sin. So here we are in this desperate situation. God's justice has demanded death as a payment for sin. Man has broken the laws of the God of the universe. This has separated him from God. The price of death now hangs over our heads, which I can't pay. If I'm dead, I'm dead. What benefit is that to me if I can't live some more? 
It's a price I can't pay, and it's by a just God. But the story doesn't end there. The fact is that we see that God's love then steps in and provides a way to help his creation pay that price. This this term called grace. And that's what we're talking about. God gives what is not deserved. What is it we don't deserve? We don't deserve life. God gives us life. What is what we don't deserve? The other side of that coin is mercy, where we say that God does not give what is deserved. What is it that we deserve? We deserve death. It's by the mercy of God that we don't suffer the price or the penalty that we do deserve. This is what grace and mercy is all about. How did he how did he do this? How did he show us this? Well, this is where we see in the Bible this great concept of blood. Blood everywhere. We see that blood is what God uses to show his mercy. You know, the, the expression is that if you took the Bible and just squeezed it, it would just drip blood. Well, this is why. It was through blood that God showed his mercy through a concept we call atonement. You've heard that? Atonement is literally just a word that means to cover something. When Noah covered the ark with pitch, that was a word, atonement. And it's atonement that God uses this term to talk about covering what? Our sins. That's where His grace and mercy comes from. And this is what animal sacrifice was all about. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. On the day of atonement, when they sacrificed and killed all those animals, that cleansed them from their sins. They were cleansed from their sins. And guess what? As a result of that, they could have a relationship with God. So that's what we see. On the day of atonement... The sins were covered from that person, and as a result, the relationship with God is restored. When we have sin in our life, and it's taken out or removed, or somehow we're made cleansed, guess what? God doesn't have to turn His face from me anymore, does He? He doesn't have to be repulsed by me anymore. Now, this relationship can exist. This great relationship of atonement. Leviticus 17, 11 puts it this way. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for what? Your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. What is it that makes atonement? We want to say blood, but really what does he say? For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it, it's the life that's making atonement, the blood just what? Represents life. It's life that's required to pay the price. That's why Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. But it's the life that's required. The life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for who? For your souls. For it is the blood, the blood, by reason of the life, that makes atonement. And this is where we get the shorthand mnemonic or shorthand expression, blood atonement. 
When we talk about blood atonement, what we're really talking about is life atonement. And that's the price that God required to pay for sin. So we look at this further. What we see is that the blood represents life. And that this innocent life, this innocent life of this perfect, unblemished and spotless lamb, atoned for the sinner. And in this way, the innocent life represents what? The guilty life. And that's how God's love stepped in to pay the price that his justice had demanded. Again, according to Hebrews 9.22. So we see this, this thing that here's sin that separates us from God. And when sin is removed by virtue of blood atonement, the relationship with God is restored. This is where we get this 50 cent word, sanctification. That's all sanctification is talking about, is that we're made holy. How are we made holy? We're made holy by having our sins removed. When we have sin in our life, it separates us from God. He turns his head. And when sin is removed, when we're sanctified, then that relationship with God is restored. As one writer put it, the sinner deserved to die, therefore the sacrifice must die. God appointed the sprinkling or pouring out of the blood of the sacrifice upon the altar to signify that the life of the sacrifice was given to God instead of the sinner's life and as a ransom or counterprice for it. Therefore, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. So we look at it this way. We've got this sinner over here, and over on the other side we've got this innocent, spotless unblemished lamb, and it's as if our sins, the sins of this guilty person, went over to that lamb. Like something from Star Trek. Transported over. Well, let's let's, let's forget that analogy. But at any rate, what happened to the lamb then? What happened to the lamb? Edwin went like this. Did he tell me to go faster? or? No, what happened to the lamb? It was then killed. That lamb was killed. Its life was taken. Its blood was shed. But what happened to the sinner then? Well, it's as if, really, the sinner died representatively through that lamb. And as a result, the sinner is made whole and clean again. And that's the idea of atonement. That really, in a, in a simple sense, is what the whole Old Testament is talking about. And think back to the Garden of Eden when man first sinned. Now, you have to understand that Genesis wasn't written to explain this plan of redemption. It's just written as a history thing for people that already understand it. We see Cain and Abel offering sacrifices. There's not a word about sacrifice or the instructions sent. And I would contend that you just think about this, that what we see in Genesis... What we see actually occurring there are all the elements of the plan of redemption. Here's Adam and Eve. They sin. They realize they're naked. They put fig leaves on. And what do they do then? They run and hide. I'd hide if I thought someone was going to kill me. Now, God comes along, realizes what's happened. And what happens? Does he kill Adam and Eve? No. But something did die, didn't it? What? So animals died. God took animal skins and used that to what? 
cover, atonement, same word there, cover Adam and Eve. And so what we see really, I contend, are all the elements of the scheme of redemption when man, or this plan of redemption, when man first sinned. And it works the same way for us today. The only way sin is removed is through the shedding of blood. So in that sense, you can say Adam and Eve died through what? The death of those animals. Just like in the Old Testament, through animal sacrifice, we see that all throughout the Bible. So we see two great things in animal sacrifice. We see God's justice taking place. How did God's justice take place through animal sacrifice? The death took place that His justice required. And we also see what? His mercy. Think about that. God's justice and His mercy in this one great act. How does mercy take place here? The person didn't have to die. The person still lived, didn't they? But it's as if they had died. How did they die? They died through that representative death, through that animal, that innocent animal. Why was an animal innocent? Well, an animal couldn't sin, could it? Now, if an animal could have sinned, could it have played this role? No. It would have been liable for its own payment, wouldn't it? Do you see how that works? So God's justice and mercy are both shown through this act of animal sacrifice. Now I contend, this is another great evidence of God. What man could have come up with this? And, and, and run it through thousands of years of Old Testament history with all the writers and authors not realizing what necessarily the big picture was. Hopefully we're getting the big picture today. But remember, let's talk about this. What made it work? It was faith that made it work. We could spend the whole morning on this, that it wasn't just some superstitious thing they were doing. What made the animal sacrifice work was faith. We see in Hebrews 11, look at all the different things. By faith, Abel offered, Noah prepared, Abraham obeyed, Abraham lived, Sarah conceived, you know, on and on and on. What do we see characteristic of all of these examples of faith that we're giving is that they were all belief-based action. You couldn't just believe in animal sacrifice. What had to happen? The animal had to be killed. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. Hebrews 11, in that same context, gives us this great definition of faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, let's not take that lightly. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But what kind of faith are we talking about? We're talking about, for he who comes to God must believe. Well, there's the belief part. We have to believe. That's the kind of you know, that's part of this faith that we have to have to please God. But look at this. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The kind of faith that is acceptable to God has always been a belief-based action. It's always been action based upon belief in what God has told them. And this is what faith is. But what about John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have an everlasting life. And then we turn right around in James, and James says, Hey... The devils believe. 
Is this just a flat out? Does the Bible contradict itself? I don't think so. It's really very easily understood if we just understand a very simple figure of speech called synecdoche. Some of you may remember that term. But we use it all the time. I bet you there's a lot of cattle farming around in this area. And we'll look out and we'll see cows and we'll see and we'll say, look, there's 50 head of cattle out there today. Now, we're not talking about a bunch of heads walking around. Whereas that head represents a whole. This is one definition of synecdoche, a part that's put for the whole. We see this all, all through the New Testament, where just a part stands for everything. And that's where we see it, particularly when it talks about belief. That's the, you know, Christ said we had to repent. A person couldn't go to heaven unless they repented. Well, I didn't say anything about repentance. But we know that it does because it's synecdoche. It represents it all that a man has to do. We see this like we see sailboats. There's 50 sail on the river. Synecdoche can also be used in the sense where the whole is used for a part. Like we see a policeman coming and we'll say, well, there comes the law. Well, that's not the whole law, judicial system coming. It's a policeman. It's a whole that is used for a part. So if we understand synecdoche, this will help us. And we have to understand that being justified by faith, are we talking about, as most, a lot of people do, is it just talking about belief alone? Or is it just talking about works alone? Or is it talking about something that is balanced in that saving faith is belief-based action? James addresses this very clearly when he says, What good is it if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such... Faith save him. Is he talking about salvation? Absolutely he is. And look in James chapter 2, James, you have to understand too, James is the first epistle, the first letter written to be circulated among all the churches. And this is one of the arguments that James deals with very specifically. Is a person saved by belief alone? And he uses a number of arguments to construct and to show that faith without action, if it has no action, is dead. Belief alone will not, is is dead. Faith is shown by action, verse 18. Verse 20, faith without action is useless. If you just got belief and there's no action connected to it, it's useless. Is that going to save you? Absolutely not. Abraham's faith, he goes on to show, was perfected by his belief working with his actions. This is, this is critical, critically important because it's not religiously correct. It's not taught by the majority of churches. In fact, he says, we're justified by action, not by belief alone. And he says, faith without action is dead. He repeats that. And then he says that the devils are believers. Now, what's James' point? He's saying, if belief alone would save a person, who would be saved? The devils. This is what he's, his argument. He's saying that there are believers in hell. Belief alone will not save a person. And while we're at it, let's just look at one other thing called the birthday check. You know, it's your birthday, you get an envelope in the mail, what do you do? You hope it's hot dog, somebody sent me a birthday card and I hope there's some money in it. You open it up and you shake the card out and you get the check 
and you turn the check over and you write your name on it and you run down to the bank and you turn it in and they give you some money and you go, hey, Edwin sent me a million dollars. Look what I did. I earned this. Who would say that? No one. You didn't earn it. We didn't earn that. All we did was we did the things that we needed to do to accept the gift. This would st- no, there's not a person alive that wouldn't still call this a gift. And I can tell you this, God's salvation is a gift. There isn't anything we can do. We can work. That's why without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission. We can do good works from now till the cows come home, and it won't remove one sin. It's a gift of God, and we have to do what is necessary to accept that. So we looked at animal sacrifice. We looked at the justice and mercy of God. But remember, we started in Galatians 3.24, where it said to go back and learn from the Old Testament all these things, things that we need to learn, that need to be taught in order to do what? Bring us to Christ so that we may be what? Justified by faith. We've learned about God's justice. We've learned about God's mercy. What else? What what are the other things that we've looked at during this learning period? Sin and sacrifice and grace and faith and atonement and representative death and redemption and holiness and sanctification and a lot more. These are just some things God wanted mankind to learn about. To prepare us for what? He wanted man to learn about all this before he did something. Before he sent his son. He wanted mankind to understand this stuff from the Old Testament. So thousands of years go by under this system. I got till shooting down my back again. And I think this is the most, one of the most climactic moments in all of the New Testament, in all the Bible, short of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ itself, is that thousands of years go by under this system. Millions of animals slain as mankind learns and understands these concepts. And then there's that day where John the Baptist is baptizing in the River Jordan. And he looks up and he sees Christ coming. Christ is here. Christ has arrived. And do you remember what he said? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Man, that's an awesome... Right there. The whole plan of redemption in that one statement. If I saw Edwin coming out, I'd say, hey, look, here comes Edwin the donkey. Would he be particularly flattered? Or, you know, y'all may all agree with that. It wouldn't necessarily be a compliment. But he, call, he calls Christ when he first sees him to these, all these Jewish people, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What did that mean to the Jewish mind? What did they just learn through thousands of years? Calling him God's Lamb. This is going to be God's sacrifice, right? And the result of that sacrifice 
will be that the sin, sin of the world, will be taken away. What does this say to someone that says, well, you know, Jesus came and he was really going to set up an earthly kingdom and the Romans just got to him before he could get it done because he was a radical thing and all and they killed him and he died accidentally. Well, that just destroys us. Jesus was announced to be God's sacrifice. That, that meant what? He had to die. His purpose in coming was to die. And what does this say about Christ's sinlessness? This is why Christ never sinned. If He had sinned one sin, could He have been the Lamb of God? No. He had been liable for His own price of death. He had been liable for His own payment of death. So this, just in this one statement, it tells us that Christ was sent to be God's sacrifice, and the result of that would be that the sin of the world would be taken away. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Well, we're going to stop right here. And next, we're going to examine the blood of Christ. Now, I appreciate all of you coming this morning, but there'll be some people, I'll just bet, there might be a few people show up that weren't here for class this morning. And so we're just going to review all this. So y'all just sit and just nod knowingly through the whole thing, and we'll try to review that very quickly. Thank you. You're dismissed. Wasn't that exciting? I can't wait to hear the second part of God's amazing plan to redeem you. Go to our website right now at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com and you can download God's Amazing Plan to Redeem You Part 2, the special series of lessons presented by Ken Craig at the Franklin Church of Christ. If you have any questions about what you've heard about this amazing plan to redeem you, if you would like to participate in that plan, give us a call at 615-794-2359, or you can contact us through our website, again, at franklinchurchofchrist.com. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.